Welcome to Ether, the podcast for the Department of the Air Force's Strategic Journal of Air Power and Space Power. I'm Dr. Laura Thurston Goodrow, and today we are joined by Major Tom Burks, an operations law attorney to the Combined Air Operations Center at Al Udeed Air Base in Doha, Qatar, and the author of Military Necessity policy capability tensions in our fall 2022 issue. Tom holds a Juris Doctorate from Indiana University, Indianapolis, and a Master of Laws in Space and Cyber Law from the University of Nebraska. Prior to his deployment, he was the Chief of Intelligence Law at 16th Air Force, Air Force's Cyber. Welcome to the podcast, Tom. Thank you. It's good to be here. So tell us a little bit about your background and the interest in the subject matter of your article. Sure. Um, any lawyer likes to talk about themselves uh, and what they do. So that's a good, great question. First of all, I'm a, a U.S. Air Force officer and I'm what they call a judge advocate or a JAG. What what that really means is that I'm a, an attorney in uniform and I've been doing this for a little over 12 years now. In my career, I've done a variety of things. We're sort of general practitioners from one assignment to the next, but I've been very fortunate in my career to have uh, an opportunity to do very uh, direct support to operations, first in domestic operations, so then space and cyber law, and now in air operations at the CAOC. And uh, my interest for this particular article came from my time after I got out of the University of Nebraska and I did what we we call the the payback tour for the Air Force of, you know, the assignment where uh, once I get that free year of school, I, I, I owe the Air Force a few years of work afterward in a, in a related field. And so they sent me to 25th Air Force, which was part of the Air Force's intelligence community element. And about six months later, it became 16th Air Force, uh, where they merged the Air Force's intelligence community and they merged the cyber uh, operations component. And they made it all one big command to do what they started calling information warfare. And so I was the chief of intelligence law there. Uh, That was my primary portfolio, was focusing on the intelligence community element part of 16th Air Force. But I sat with and worked with and did a lot of the same reviews that the primary portfolio cyber operations attorneys were doing. And while we were doing that, we would have, you know, you're sitting in a bullpen just full of lawyers. And when you have problems, you ask your friends. And so one of the issues we have is we have operations attorneys from traditional air operations and things like that. And we get handed this portfolio of policy that says comply with the law of armed conflict. And we look at it and say, what is a military necessity about this thing? And so there are several ways different people approach it. Um, Like any good lawyer, you figure out ways to help your client get to what they want to be able to do unless it's absolutely not possible. But you get them, you get them to yes and you get them to write whenever you can. And that's sort of what the job is. And when you can't, you help them figure out why and then to get the authority to do that. So when we're looking at things like military necessity, distinction and proportionality, some of the main components of the law of armed conflict, when we apply it to a cyberspace operation that looks nothing like what you would call an attack, which international law defines as an act of violence, like when you're in operations where you're not in an armed conflict, the sort of competition space where we typically use cyber operations and intelligence, 
what does military necessity look like? And from there, what does distinction look like? What does proportionality look like? So this paper came out of wrestling with the question of how do I help my client comply with DOD policy? And when I got to the end of it, um, I didn't like some of the ways that uh, it was being approached. So I decided like, I'm just, I'm just gonna wrestle with it until I figure it out in my own head. Uh, and then once I'm satisfied with it, I, I'll, uh, we'll, I'll just start using it within uh, within my work. Then after a while, I said, you know, I, I've already written this thing down. I might as well smooth it out a little bit and turn it into an article and see if somebody will publish it. So that's the gener- That's how it generated, and that's how I got here today. That's practice turning into something practical. So that's, I think that's a good thing. So on that, you've kind of touched on this a little bit already, but you write that though the principle of military necessity is inherently flexible in the absence of an armed conflict, military necessity must be determined in a vacuum where the military component of the term takes center stage. Focusing on the military component means an operation must include a military benefit or advantage before it may be considered a military necessity. You then observe that in the case of the U.S. Cyber Command attack against the Russia-based but civilian Internet Research Agency in late 2018, the operation fell short of this standard. So talk a little bit more about that and how you approach um, using this as sort of a case study and and what you kind of already did this, you know, a few minutes ago, but um, for those without, you know, legal backgrounds, maybe elaborate a little bit more on key terms and principles like law of war, law of armed conflict, military necessity, military advantage, military benefit. Sure. And actually, that was where I was going to start. So that works out. In fact, when we were going through the peer review process, one of the comments I got was, I can't tell whether this person is a lawyer, uh, which I took as high praise. That was sort of the point. <laughs> when when attacking the, the concept of a DOD policy and how it applies in a cyber operation, it's helpful to first understand what the body of law is so that you can see the struggle with how you apply this policy. Um, so starting big picture, there's the law of war. So law of war is international law. It's divided into two main buckets or categories. One is the, the rules that govern when you're allowed to go to war in the first place. The second group is laws that regulate your conduct once you are actually in an armed conflict. So that's the focus. That's that's the law of armed conflict component of it. The uh, And so that's that was sort of the focus of where I went with this is we're, we're not using force, so we don't have to worry about the rules about whether or not that's that's permissible under international law. We're just worried about applying this policy, the rules that apply once you are in an armed conflict. So so with that, the when you're talking about the law of armed conflict or LOAC, there's for me, there's three main principles that sort of inter, interact with one another and, and govern how you actually conduct operations. The first sort of threshold principle is, is known as the principle of military necessity. Military necessity has its origins in the Lieber Code uh, that the U.S. Army used during the Civil War to govern its conduct in the field. And uh, I don't have the Lieber Code's definition in front of me at the moment, but it, it tracks very, very closely with the one that we still use today. And the DOD Law of War Manual says military necessity justifies the use of all measures needed to defeat the enemy as quickly and efficiently as possible that are not prohibited by the law of war. And so, as you can see, military necessity is, is a, it, it provides a threshold, it provides a way to look at it, and I have to determine, like, will this help me achieve my tactical, operational, strategic objectives as a military force in order to 
win or achieve victory, or in the case of modern limited type wars, will this help me achieve the political objectives that have been placed before me? If the answer is yes, then the operation is a military necessity. As you can imagine, that is a huge fan of, of actions that could be justified under this. So uh, imagine if we fought World War II today in the European theater, uh, somebody in the most expansive notion might say, well, if it's the German military we're fighting and the German industry that we're fighting, ultimately as feeding that war machine, if we just killed all Germans, then we'd be in good shape. Uh, that would definitely end the war. But there's that last part of military necessity that also says, and not otherwise uh, prohibited by the law of war. And that's the part that sort of draws it down and draws it in, where you can't just justify anything you want to do. It also has to comply with other things. And so the first thing you look at when you get past military necessity is you look at distinction, which distinction is just the idea that I can target combatants and I can target military objects but I can't target civilians or non-combatants, depending on how you want to call it. And I can't target protected objects, which include civilian objects, cultural objects, and, and things like that. And then you take the principle of proportionality that draws military necessity down even further. And so distinction, it, it, the way it works is if it is militarily necessary and it satisfies distinction, meaning it's a person or thing that I can target, Proportionality says, yeah, but if you are going to damage protected people or protected objects while attacking, that uh, that thing is permissible to attack. If the incidental harm to those protected people is going to outweigh the military advantage that you're going to gain from the attack, then you still can't do it. And so military necessity gives and distinction and proportionality take it right back down. Uh, and the idea is that you're left with a, a subset of military operations because what we're really talking about is attacks, blowing things up, killing people. You're, you're left with things that are justifiable under international law, but also are focused to those things that we in particular need to destroy or to capture or to neutralize in order to actually achieve the objectives of the conflict. So that's the basics of how LOAC functions. The DOD for many years has applied these things as a matter of policy. And this is an important point to note that none of these LOAC principles actually apply outside of an armed conflict or when you are using force in some way. And even when you are inside of an armed conflict, they don't apply to everything. They only apply to attacks which are, again, are, are acts of violence, neither offense or defense under international law. So we are taking things that don't apply and we are applying them as a matter of policy. The problem with that is that when you look at military necessity, the first thing that jumps out to me when I look at it is, one, the military word in it, but two, it talks about measures necessary to defeat the enemy. And then it's a distinction tells me that I can attack military objects, but not civilian ones. And proportionality talks about incidental harm to civilian objects when I'm attacking military objects. So what is a military object? It's something that by its nature, location, purpose, or use offers an advantage to your enemy and whose destruction or neutralization or capture offers a military advantage to you. And so every time I look at military necessity, distinction, proportionality, I'm focused on the concept of I have an enemy. They have things that are a military advantage to them. I have things that are a military advantage to me. 
And by working through the concept of I have an enemy and I'm seeking a military advantage in order to achieve the objectives of the conflict, I arrive at a body of permissible activities. But when I'm operating in a policy space where I don't have a war, I don't have an enemy per se, I don't have declared hostile forces, I'm sort of left with this paradigm in which I, I well, I have, I have definitions under international law for military distinction, military necessity and distinction and proportionality that inform that definition. I don't have the conflict to tell me what is actually militarily necess- necessary for achieving its objectives. And so I'm left with looking at, well, what's my military advantage? I'm not sure I have one in some cases. And that's where I use the case study to kind of demonstrate it. I'm actually forever in indebted to a friend of mine at 16th Air Force for suggesting uh, the one news story that was actually sufficiently open source to use as a case study. So in particular, 2018 operation, the law of the law of war policy that the DOD had in place at the time just said you will comply with law with the law of war in all armed conflicts. That's international law, it's intuitive. And then it goes on to say you also have to apply with the the law of war in all other military operation. Well, this was a cyber operation conducted by a military unit. Therefore, this policy would apply to it. Now, on one hand, you could look at it and say, you could make an argument, like any any good lawyer should be able to make this argument, I think, uh, to be able to help the client. You could look at it and say, well, if I take this military necessity distinction proportionality and I decide it doesn't actually apply to this operation because it's not an attack and we're not in an armed conflict that's complying with the law of war because I'm applying the law of war exactly how it functions in an armed conflict. But in practice, I can tell you from experience, that is not in fact how it's done. And in addition to that, the Department of Defense law of war manual actually just flat out says that you can, because they are not attacked, you can use cyberspace operations to target civilians and civilian objects. But those operations, uh, and I'll use a quote here, such operations may not be directed against enemy civilians or civilian objects unless the operations are a military necessity. And then it goes on to talk about proportionality. And so any any sort of like wiggle room in the policy to, to uh, around the word compliance and whether or not just treating it like you would under the law of armed conflict literally, whether or not you can get around it that way is sort of foreclosed by how we do it in practice and how the DOD general counsel has told lawyers they're going to interpret this thing through the law of war manual. And so we're stuck with, I definitely do have to apply this thing. So I have to look at it and say, well, the IRA, I have to comply with it, with this operation to take them off the internet. I have to comply with the law of, with the law of armed conflict. So let's start with military necessity. I have a civilian corporation staffed by civilians, run by a civilian that from what I could tell had no connection to the Russian Ministry of Defense or to its military. It was not attacking our military forces, was not attacking our military capabilities. It was trying to influence our election in some way. And while defending our elections is definitely a very worthy national security objective, I would argue that it's not really a military one, or at least not an intuitively one. And so when I look at all the times that I see the word civilian, 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 and a much bigger picture uh, national security objective, I look at it and say, well, yeah, it was legal, but I don't see a military advantage to this operation. And if I can't find a military advantage, then I can't call it a military objective. And I therefore can't call it a uh, military necessity. I can't satisfy distinction and I can't satisfy proportionality. I have nothing against which I can judge the policy compliance of these things. And 
obviously we still did the operation. So I have no idea how we, uh, the ultimate legal review that got around these thorny issues, uh, or at least thorny as I saw them. Who knows? Could have been just a one-time exception to policy. Could have been a better lawyer, perhaps. But I, I just sort of wrestled with this thing and just went and and looked, it looked at military necessity and what it meant and how it applied, where it came from. When I ultimately looked at was when Abraham Lincoln issued the Lieber Code and when it was actually applied over the next few years during the Civil War, it was used to justify things like burning raw cotton to rob the Confederacy of their ability to export that cotton and therefore fuel their war effort. So there's there's like an economic warfare concept of this, but in that and that's a sort of traditional warfare type of thing, destroying enemy supplies and things like that. Uh, I should note that under international law, not all nations are comfortable with the idea of doing that. Um, right. But once you once you get beyond that, you you have examples of things like the Union Army in areas that they had occupied in the South, even while the war was ongoing. They set up civil provost courts. This is the United States Army, and they're 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 hearing cases and settling civil disputes between private parties. This is not something the United States Army typically does, but it was a military necessity in that context because the trouble that they were having with civilians always coming to them was actually encumbering their ability to conduct military operations. And so they set up this separate military body. It says so that the operational commanders could say, "Go talk to those people." they will help you or they will hear your dispute leave me alone so i can do my job so that was a military necessity it helped them focus on the war so that they could achieve the the objectives of the war so military necessity to me once i read that i was like well it looks like it can it can do things that are not traditional force aimed at the logistics and and economics of your opponent it can also include things that aren't traditional armed force like setting up civil courts and then i came to you know perhaps the quintessential example of military necessities flexibility with the emancipation proclamation and today we look at the emancipation proclamation as a remarkable step forward in fleet and freeing enslaved peoples and it certainly is that. But when you look very closely at the language, it's not just that. And the way it was justified is, is very interesting. President Lincoln wanted to, he was essentially looking for a way that he could use only his constitutional authority to be able to do as much as he could for that particular moment, not having to rely on any other branch of government. And so he ex- uses as expansive a language as he could, justifying it under his commander-in-chief authority. And so that's why when you read the Emancipation Proclamation, you will see that it's very specific about where it applies. In some cases, it breaks it down by county. And what that the reason it does that is because it is only applicable in areas that were then under still under rebellion over which he had a lot of authority about how what the Union Army did during wartime. And he also used language in it like calling it a fit and necessary war measure. So one can imagine that enslaved peoples being the workforce of the South, especially in places like Atlanta, where they had a lot of their industry, the South logistics depended a lot on that workforce. And so robbing them of that workforce will slow down their logistics, harm their war effort, and just weaken the Confederacy overall as that workforce is taken away from them. So by calling it a fit and necessary war measure, what President Lincoln is really saying is this thing is a military necessity. 
And so my takeaway ultimately from that is military necessity is very, very, very flexible. It can include things that are not force. It can include things that are national security objectives, like preserving the Union, which is what I would argue the Emancipation Proclamation was, rather than just like tactical or operational objectives specific to a military formation within a theater. And my takeaway beyond that was not just that it's flexible, but it's actually the war that shaped what was militarily necessary for achieving its objective. That was my most important realization, I think, is I think we all sort of intuitively hear a broad definition and think, wow, you can fit a lot in there. But to take that next step and say, it's really the war that tells you what it is. And in my mind, that's what creates this policy capability tension, because I get to the end of my analysis and I say, well, Cyber Command had all of the international, domestic and constitutional authority it needed to be able to conduct this operation. And we're going to say it, it somehow didn't apply with DOD policy. There's a there's an interesting tension there because it, Cyber Command is capable of doing something with this operation as it has been tasked, but policy prevents it from fulfilling the full scope of what it's able to do. Now, this is common in the military. Authority is always outstripped by capability, always. Okay. But in this case, it's particularly galling, perhaps is the right word, because there's it, it's just it, it puts you at loggerheads with a best tool approach to national security. So the president should be able to take any number of executive branch agencies and decide which one he believes is the best one to handle a particular problem. In this particular case, he chose the Department of Defense and U.S. Cybercom. He has all the constitutional authority he needs to be able to do that, at least in this instance. But the DOD policy, by requiring compliance with the the law of war, put Cyber Command in tension, I suppose, with, uh, as a matter of policy, with the constitutional authority of the president and with a a best tool uh, approach to national security where the president decides who is best to handle a particular job. And so that tension is what I was trying to resolve when I looked at it. And when I looked at the problem and thought through it, and when I ultimately came to the conclusion of, well, if military necessity is very flexible and accommodating when it has a conflict, then the solution, I think, is to just give these operations a conflict. And then you can look at it and say, yes, this is important. This helps me achieve the objectives of this conflict. And therefore, it is a military necessity when the job is given to a military formation. The trouble, of course, is the absence of a conflict. And when I ultimately came to realize that this sort of undermines even having a, an article in the first place, I suppose, you don't need to change in law, you don't need to change in policy, you just need to change how you think and how you look at the problem set. It's not that we need a genuine conflict, it's that we need to realize that we're already in this conflict we call competition. And if we look at competition as a sort of conflict, we provide the backdrop by which we can determine whether or not an, a military cyber operation is a military necessity, because we can we can see what objectives the president has set, we can see uh, how the authorities flow down from the president um, or the joint chiefs and various forms of uh, military orders. We can say these operations are necessary for achieving the objectives that have been set before me, for achieving the comparative advantage that my country is seeking through this cyberspace operation in this competition sphere between powers in the world. And so if I have competition as, or strategic competition or great power competition, whichever buzzwords you prefer, if I have this as sort of a conflict and a backdrop to analyzing cyberspace operations, I now have a conflict against which I can judge policy compliance. And it suddenly just sort of opens the entire door 
door up to policy compliance, in my opinion, because once you can satisfy military necessity, then you can analyze distinction and you can analyze proportionality, which again, don't apply as a matter of law. And today we don't have to comply with them. We only have to be consistent with them, but it informs how you can be consistent with them as you go down through the analysis. And in my in my article, I mentioned one of the benefits to it is that speaking in terms of distinction and proportionality to military people is intuitive at this point. We've all heard these words and phrases used a lot. Military planners know to go talk to their JAG when they run into this stuff and how to talk through it. And so those all things only apply during wartime and in an attack. But what this sort of does is takes that body of law and turns it into policy at the other end of the, of the competition spectrum. And so you have one set of rules that apply all the way across. And it's sort of intuitive for the people who actually conduct them day to day. Thinking about that, are there any downsides, you know, playing in a devil's advocate role against yourself? Are there, do you see any hurdles that would have to be overcome to reframe conflict as strategic competition? Um, I, yeah, I think you, I, I think you could muddy the waters a bit. One of the hallmarks of international law and how it applies to start with, I, I think of international law, not as how we normally think of law, but really as the rules by which states interact with one another. And when you, when you look at international law, the interaction between states or what we call state practice is incredibly important. What the president says, what certain key members of Congress say, if you're in a diplomatic relations type of scenario, what the head of the Department of Defense and what the Secretary of State say is going to matter a lot. Uh, that's why things like the DOD Law of War Manual, this is state practice. This tells the world this is how the United States views international law. So when you when you look at it in terms of that, when you start using cyberspace operations in the competition sphere in terms of LOAC, even if you're very clear that it's as a matter of policy, you're taking a very warlike body of law and placing it into policy, which we likely view as very innocent. It's just a paradigm we are accustomed to using and therefore we're going to use it for all of our operations that might impact other people. It might not look so benign to other people though. It may look like you were conflating concepts and you were broadening the concept of of international law, which is dangerous for an adversary state because while the UN Charter prohibits the threat or use of force, it sort of creates tension within itself by recognizing a guaranteed right to collective and individual self-defense. And so the United States has always had a position that is a little little different than most countries where it says the armed attack standard for responding in self-defense is met by any use of force. There's no, like if you use any amount of force against me, I can respond to self-defense. Other states look at it and say, well, I mean, yeah, an armed attack is a use of force, but it's it's a more severe use of force that triggers the right to self-defense. And so we've always been sort of this little bit more belligerent state when it comes to defending ourselves. And so once you start looking at cyberspace operations, which are very non-forceful for the great majority of them, but you start applying things like military necessity, distinction, and proportionality, you might make your adversary start thinking that we are expanding the notion of force and expanding the notion of self-defense, which permits us to do things in return that we would not otherwise be able to do. And it's important on this point that we realize that just because somebody used what you call a use of force through a cyberspace means does not mean you have to respond in kind. They can send what we call trons and you can send missiles in return if it really is a use of force under international law. And so I could see an adversary looking at us and seeing that the United States is going down a more belligerent path by 
uh, and creating a, a greater excuse for using self-defense easily by using uh, military necessity and LOAC principles in a, in a competition sphere through cyberspace operations. That's that's one problem I see. The other problem I see is it just, I can just tell you amongst the legal community, just because I think this is the right idea, doesn't mean anybody else will use it. <laughs> so there's, there's the potential... Uh, one of the reasons that I, I, I sought a way to publish it is so that it would outlast just my few legal reviews in a two-year assignment. That if, if people were uh, liked the, the line of reasoning and wanted to continue using it because they, they found it intuitive and thought that it uh, sort of made the analysis more more feasible and more lawyerly, if you will. If, if they liked it and wanted to, to use it, they've got, they've got something to cite to that lasts beyond just a few paragraphs and some legal reviews I wrote uh, a couple of years ago. So that's the other part to it. One is a, like a genuine international problem where we might be seen as too belligerent. And the other one is just sort of a, you know, a within the, the body of Department of Defense lawyers, whether or not this will gain any traction and whether or not anybody will actually will use it. But I think it makes sense. And we'll see how it goes with the international law problem. That's obviously the much bigger one. Yeah, I think that it's reassuring that we continue to operate within a lawfare sort of mindset and rule of law. So as much as you know, some might think some of this is really in the weeds and, you know, uh, there have been critiques all along about, you know, the attorneys get involved and all that. But I think it's just a, you know, reassurance that we are adhering to some sort of rule of law, which is what our nation stands for. So I think it's very interesting and a great contribution to the debate, as it, as it were. So I'm going to ask, do you have any concluding thoughts as we wrap this up? Yeah, I think to, to add on to what I just said about the uh, potential issues, there's two things. One is a potential issue, and the other one is, is just while the paper was about military necessity, I just wanted to touch on how it actually informs the remainder of the analysis that I didn't have enough words to, to get into for publication. But another way to look at this is I, I know from having exchanged emails with you in the past, you spent the time as an analyst. And so you're very comfortable with the idea of the intelligence community has a completely different set of rules. It has since the 70s. Yep. And uh, particularly since 1981, when executive order uh, 12333 was, was issued. So we already have a subset of military operations and non-military operations in the intelligence community that follow a completely different paradigm and a completely different set of rules. Because they are not attacks, because they are not a use of force, they follow a different different path. And there's also obviously very privacy-related reasons and Fourth Amendment and First Amendment reasons for why we do those things. But primarily, they're not attacks, so we don't apply low act to them. There is a school of thought that says we should do the same thing with cyber operations unless they are going to actually qualify as an attack. I think that the debate should still be ongoing. Like if if I could have my druthers, I, I would not say... I would not say just take my article and run with it. I would say take my article and use it while we continue to think about whether that's the right path or whether or not we just need to come up with a different policy paradigm for these cyber operations within a competition sphere outside of war. So I, I think that's that's one issue. And then, but in the meantime, before until we get there, there is a concept by how we can drive policy compliance, but just changing how we look at a conflict. I can suddenly see what my national security and uh, Department of Defense and my unit's objectives are for meeting the objectives of the competition that the United States has with a particular country that we have said we are in competition with. So I'm sort of enabled with military necessity. But then you go down below that and you say, well, I got to distinguish between civilian 
objects and military objects when I'm working under the LOAC paradigm. And proportionality says I got to avoid incidental harm unless it's outweighed by the military advantage that I get from it. So my thought is that since we have to act consistent with the law of war, instead of literally in compliance with these principles. Once we get past the military necessity roadblock by, by changing how we think about conflict and, and calling it strategic competition, we can now look at distinction and say, well, this isn't a civilian object per se. This is an object that provides a, a benefit to my adversary and whose neutralization or taking offline of this thing provides a national security advantage to the United States. I just happen to be a military formation who is achieving that national security advantage. And proportionality could become something like, will the incidental harm to the civilian populace that is not associated with my adversary's efforts, will that harm be outweighed by the national security benefit that I achieve by undertaking this operation? So once you get past military necessity, it sort of just permits a little modification of how you look at distinction and proportionality that one just sort of flows from the other. In my opinion, it, it informs the entire analysis start to finish, uh, not just the military necessity component. And until such time, we decide that we're going to do a completely different paradigm. I think cracking the nut on the military necessity part sort of enables the entire analysis start to finish. Well, it's, it's a really interesting article and a really interesting approach that seems to have merit from my non my non legal standpoint, and um, I really appreciate you joining us from from Cutter to talk today. Thanks for contributing to the journal, and thanks for joining us on the podcast. It was my pleasure, and thank you for taking the time to, to publish my article. Your team was really great um, going through the editorial process, and it made a. I've published a few things that some are better experiences than others. Your team was a, a great experience for anyone out there who might want to think publishing with you. It was uh, great to work with and process. And in addition to that, this was this was very fun. It's my first podcast. You made it very made very simple, very easy, and I enjoyed it very much. Thank you very thank you very I'm, much. I'm glad. Well, we look forward to to um, featuring you again as an author and as a guest. And in the meantime, be safe.